各位听众朋友们，大家好，欢迎听到 The Bilateral, the flagship podcast from the Canada-China Business Council. I'm Sarah Kudalakos, CCBC's Executive Director, and my co-host is Noah Fraser, our Managing Director in Beijing. 希望您会喜欢这个播客。The Bilateral is designed to shed light on issues of interest to the Canada-China business community, to highlight some of the interesting work CCBC's members are doing. And to help our Canadian audience better understand what is happening in China today from a business perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us.、Um, your co-host Noah Fraser, managing director for the Canada-China Business Council for China, here based in Beijing. I'm joined by、uh, a good friend and colleague of ours at PwC,、um, also in Beijing, Mr. Callum Douglas, who's the corporate responsibility director for China and the Asia Pacific.、Uh, Callum is PwC's corporate responsibility director and net zero leader. For China and APAC, working collaboratively to develop, deliver PwC's local and global community and environment ambitions, including PwC's Net Zero 2030 commitment, he is passionate about sustainability and supporting business, government, and non-government organizations to take a lead in creating positive social and environmental impact. Before joining PwC in 2008, Callum worked with NGOs in capacity building and corporate partnership roles. And then for UNDP China as United Nations volunteer on a project aimed at strengthening volunteerism、uh, for development in China, Cal holds a BA in Chinese and APAC studies from Leeds University and a postgraduate diploma in economic principles from the University of London. He's been living in Beijing since 2006. So putting my tenure in Beijing to shame, actually, right there at Cal, <laughs> my tender arrival of 2018、uh, pales in comparison to yours. But、uh, welcome and thanks for joining us on the, on the bilateral. Thank you, Noah. Pleasure to be here. So、um, I'm going to dive right in.、Uh, today our topic is on the very broad and yet very hot area of ESG, and、uh, of course,、uh, I think a lot of our listeners probably even struggle to define. You know, we all know what it stands for: environmental, social, and governance. Just in case you don't, but、um, you know, we are really kind of jumping into this conversation partially because we have recently co-authored a report with Callum and the team at PwC、uh, at CCBC on ESG and the importance of it for Canadian firms and really global firms operating in. China, and so the report is very focused on China. But we're hoping to talk a little bit about what、uh, foreign companies and global companies need to be considering when looking at ESG. And we're going to try to cover a few different topics today in this conversation. But、um, you know, Cal, maybe that's a good place to kick off. Is maybe you can tell us, you know, some of the fundamental building blocks for this ESG report that we've just completed. You know, there are lots of different considerations listed in that matrix under each of these ESG pillars. But maybe you can tell us why we zeroed in on some of the ones that we ultimately did. Sure, absolutely. No, and thank you for the chance to to speak with you about this today. It's been a pleasure to work on this report with you and the team.、Um, I really hope it's a helpful document for companies working and sourcing from China as well. So ESG covers a huge range of areas, as you've said. You know, covering through environment, social, and governance. And I think in the last couple of years, it's been very much focused on the environment side.、Um, a lot of people talk about sustainability when they're talking about ESG, but we really wanted to make sure that this is broadened out to cover all the areas、uh, broadly under environment, social. And governance. Within that, though, it's important that companies need to focus on what's material for them, and that's both in terms of of the kind of organization they are, and also in the markets that they're working in. So, when we looked through the range of、um, ESG issues in the matrix, we we pulled out ones that were particularly relevant. 
considering China's policies, uh, which are changing at a really fast pace and developing very quickly um, at the moment. So there was a big focus on net zero everywhere in the world, but in China also with the 2030-2060 carbon goals, which we can talk about in a bit more detail later on. That means there's a real need to work on companies' carbon footprints and understand that, including through their supply chain, so they can really see the impact that they have as, as they work through these issues. And then looking at, at biodiversity as, as really one of the upcoming topics, um, something that's increasingly mm. talked about, but really only just the beginning in terms of how it, it features in, in companies' bottom lines and financials. So those are the three areas that we thought were really critical to cover on the environment side. And when we look through the social, again, huge amount of things that are covered here from human capital to product to liability, stakeholder um, opposition and, and social opportunity. You know, it's a very, very broad area. Um, it's very nuanced. Um, there are a lot of issues within that. Um, the focus we have here is on employee welfare and on supply chain labor standards. And that's that's really because when we look at these issues, it's very important to focus on the processes um, as much as or more than the outcomes that you're looking at. Because once you have the processes in place, it's a good opportunity to really make sure you narrow down that risk um, that you have going through the supply chain as well. And we can't forget governance. That's always uh, critical, right? Every every <laughs> company needs to have a good a good governance structure. Um, and given the the nature of this report, we wanted to focus right in on ESG governance at that, making sure that you know, if you're talking about ESG, you really have the governance processes in place to make sure that's happening systematically through your organization and through your supply chain. Doing it without having that structure in place gives a lot of rise to risk for greenwashing as well, which is something increasingly talked about. And and so it's important to have that structure. And then beyond that, also, uh, there's a big focus in China um, and everywhere on anti-competitive practices. So that was an area that has been mm -hmm. focused in on as well. Yeah, no, we, you're, uh, that could be the podcast right there. You actually <laughs> did a pretty good job of just <laughs> driving down on each one of those. But uh, I, I'm unfortunately going to have to put you through your paces a little bit on a few of Feel them. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as, as, as our listeners can obviously tell, this was this was broad reaching and um, and, and it was ambitious, but uh, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. But let's let's dive into a couple of these and maybe I can start by by asking a question that I think is relevant to a lot of our members. You know, we have a, we have a great deal of our membership that represents small and medium sized enterprises, roughly 60 or 70 percent, actually, of our members are uh, are considered SMEs. Um, and, and I, I guess I hear this regularly, and, and I hope that uh, you can you can hammer home the importance of it. But you know, what what do you say to the medium sized firms or or the smaller to medium sized firms that are worrying about driving the ESG agenda? But per particularly, what what will that mean in terms of negatively affecting profit margins? You know, like in the short term, mm -hmm. is ESG very expensive? What is the point? You know. I hear a lot of sort of very practical questions about ESG management and ESG in general. And, and maybe you can comment on, on what you say to executives when they ask you at PwC, you know, why are we doing this? Sure. That's a great question. And of course, we, we hear that a lot. And, and we don't just hear that from the small and medium sized enterprise. We hear that also from the big companies. <laughs> um, you know, every, everyone sees if there's an investment, it needs to be justified. And, and that's what we're trying to get the point across. Um, again, when we're looking at ESG, it covers such a broad range of areas and we really have to think of it as making sure you're doing good business all the time, right? Working in a responsible way, making sure you're following through with good governance structures um, and also making sure that you're organization is delivering financially in the long term. So I think that's where it's critical. There, there will be upfront investments that need to be made um, as standards rise. Um, and that's compliance driven. So I think it's, it's more of, of a necessity of business now rather than something that people are trying to do just to get ahead of game or to build their brand. Mm. What we see, see long-term 
is that companies who have stronger ESG governance and policies in place, they actually outperform their rival in, in the markets when you look at returns on, on their uh, shares as well. So that's something that is um, really encouraging as you look long term for that. For, uh, for SMEs, I think the, the concern really is, is about how to make sure that they're doing business responsibly and also building trust with um, those in their supply chain and their business partners mm. um, in China for companies who are working or sourcing from here. The, the number of issues that companies run into because they haven't got those systems in place, they haven't got the trust with their stakeholders um, is significant. So putting in place plans that broadly follow the ESG agenda can actually really help companies um, as they enter the market and build their presence here. It sounds like more than anything, this really is is actually just good business practice, you know, in, in so many ways. And it kind of falls into those ESG pillars. But uh, I, I, you did bring up, you know, China, and I want to make sure that we we keep the focus somewhat on on that. Uh, you know, ESG is is very far reaching, and and companies are looking at it from all kinds of different perspectives. But we we really do try to keep the keep our our eyes on China and look through that lens. Let's talk a little bit about those dual carbon goals. What what were your first reactions to those twenty thirty and twenty sixty targets? You know, can, can you unpack those policies for us a little bit, um, and maybe tell us what your thoughts are? Are they are they too ambitious, or do you think they're 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 doable? Thanks. This is a great topic, and it's it's never been far out of out of conversations over the last couple of years since these uh, targets were announced um, almost two years ago now. So yes, they are hugely ambitious and they're really important. They're really important for the global fight against climate change um, and that needs to be recognized as well. I think what we're seeing, I mean, my personal reactions were not a great surprise uh, of the commitments coming out. There'd also been a lot of talk of this internally in China um, leading up to the events. Um, it was it was time at a critical time in, in global meetings as well. So the, that was expected. I think what's What's significant is the the differences between the targets in China and a lot of um, developed countries in the West as well, where you see China's goal is is to peak carbon by 2030 and to reach carbon neutrality before 2060. So what that means is is whereas a lot of developed economies are currently decarbonizing already uh, from very high levels, uh, China's plan is still to increase emissions over time um, in order to meet their economic output targets and then very rapidly and very aggressively decarbonize after 2030. So when you think of it in that context, the the task is enormous because the bulk of the work is being put in place now. Um, However, a lot of the action is going to have to happen in the next decade um, after that, which is when you'll see very rapid decarbonization. And and if you sort of take a step back now and look at the context for this, you know, we, according to the the Paris goals, we need to ramp up decarbonization to, you know, 13% reduction per year um, or more than that. We're currently at less than, you know, negative 1.5% a year. China is at minus 1% of that. So there's a huge, a huge uphill battle in this. There's massive investments that need to be made in that. And just to, to monetize that, you'll be aware of um, Tsinghua University is one of the leading universities in, in China. Their Institute of Climate Change and Sustainable Development estimates that 170 trillion RMB is needed for the transition to carbon neutrality over that time. So, you know, you can look at that as a challenge or an opportunity. That's clearly a huge amount of investment yeah. being put in place. Yeah, that's like, you know, we're talking about the global economy kind of thing. Um, it, it, it makes you wonder if the word ambitious is is not strong enough. Um, but you did, you know, you mentioned you, we, we, they have, they, they do have very significant economic goals that, that they've announced too, just a couple of weeks ago at the, at the yeah. Lianhui, right. And so that um, I, I have a feeling that in the eyes of the, uh, of the Chinese administration, those, those numbers come first. Um, 
but but interesting to hear it hear it put into those very real terms. Um, you uh, we, you mentioned earlier um, greenwashing, quote unquote, and I, I love this mm. term, and we're starting to hear it more and more often. Can you can you talk a, a little bit about that? Can you maybe define it for us? You know, and maybe it, it, more practically, what are some examples of it, and and really why is it important to to avoid in good ESG strategizing? Mm, absolutely, it's a really important topic, and and the more people are talking about ESG and particularly sustainability and environmental sustainability, it's, it's come much more in focus. Um, greenwashing is really when you you say you are doing things to be environmentally friendly, but your actions um, are showing otherwise in in very simple terms. Um, so it might be things that, that people fall into the traps of over-marketing with their mm-hmm. efforts effectively. Um, and then what they're actually doing on the ground doesn't live up to the hype. I think that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's one way of putting it. There's a, a lot of risk around this, and it's only increasing over the last and upcoming years, I believe, as well, um, because companies are absolutely getting behind net zero commitments um, and really want to do the mm-hmm. right thing. Uh, sometimes they just don't have the capabilities in place. Um, or the human capital in place to really follow through on those actions um, and understand what it means. You know, it's, it's a very technical space when you start getting into science-based targets for emissions reductions and, and genuine net zero agreements. Mm-hmm. So the risk is often, you know, companies think they're doing the great thing, but actually it doesn't match um, as, as much as what they're saying. So you can look at a couple of examples in, in China. We saw a, a fast food brand who had been very vocal and very active in sustainability and um, had got called out for a packaging issue. Uh, unsustainable packaging, for example. So these are the kind of things that that are being consistently picked up and increasingly picked up by NGOs and also mm-hmm. government regulators and authorities. So it's something that people have to be very careful about. I think the the good thing is that there is help around that. There are a lot of standards that can help companies, both both medium enterprises and and bigger ones, like the you know the science based targets um, initiative helps companies to set standards. Um, to really make sure they have robust emissions reduction plans in line with their net zero targets. There's the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related um, Financial Disclosures, which, which helps like, companies understand the risks and opportunities um, related to carbon and climate change. So th- there are processes to follow, which can really back up claims that, that companies are making uh, for their environment efforts. You, do you, uh, this is a bit off topic, and, and you know, if you don't have the answer, then, then no sweat, but do you find that the the landscape of NGOs or the organizations that are actually taking these companies to task in China is is this a robust space? Like, are there are there companies out there that really care? You know, you mentioned that excellent in. Yeah. <laughs> We we living in China see food packaging as just being a nightmare mm. here, right? You know, it's it's massive. It's a massive issue. Right. You can only it's almost unfathomable how much is is created every day. Are are you seeing some good, you know, local or 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 I should say domestic companies that are working hard on this, or is this more government driven? It's always a bit of both, isn't it? In in China, and government mm-hmm. drive is very strong, and that's one advantage actually that the NGOs have in in this space is that NGOs who have been successful at addressing green washing issues or, or just bad environmental performance by companies are ones that are sticking very, very closely to the letter of the law in terms of matching companies' performance against that law. That way, it's not mm-hmm. a, a value proposition or a, or a value position. It's, it's a legal position. And so they're, they're right. able to apply the law um, in order to support environmental uh, outcomes for that. So we're seeing that certainly more happening on mm, we're seeing that happening on the NGO side. Uh, we do see efforts being made in in China absolutely by some of the big, I guess, delivery companies, food delivery distributors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are huge challenges in that space, but there are options uh, that consumers are able to choose in order to reduce the amount of packaging being used. 
um, when they receive their deliveries, for example. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of intent on their side to do better in this space. Uh, but the challenge is huge. Yeah, I uh, I want to come back to that consumer thinking in a moment. But um, you know, maybe you can. This is also a good segue. You know, in your in your years of of monitoring social reform in China, you know, we're starting to talk a little bit about the people and everybody. I, I'm sure all of our listeners have, have heard the term. Um, Know, common prosperity or th- this concept mm. it's not quite a policy but i would say it's a concept um you know maybe you can comment on what that translates to for companies that are operating here in terms of employee welfare both you know short and, and longer term yeah absolutely and this is a this has been a really positive development in you know we call it policy in the, in the loose sense as you said mm-hmm. for china as well as it's as more of a concept uh, and the idea is is really making sure we consistently raise quality of life um across all regions and and in or communities across China. That's the drive behind it. And so what that means from a company perspective is really making sure we're following labor standards um, very carefully. And there are very clear standards that exist in, in this. And some of these are detailed through the report as well. So I encourage you to take a look mm-hmm. through these and, and some of the policy timelines um, in that to understand more. Um, but putting in place uh, standards, adhering to standards that are in place, I should say, and also then seeing what more can you do as an organization, probably more harking back to when people talk about CSR as, as community engagement. Mm-hmm. But how can, you, how can you support the families of your workers um, the communities of your supply chain um, to continue to build that trust and uh, government relations at the very local level as well. I think that's something that is where it can be channeled from the corporate perspective. And disclosure is something that's increasingly an important part of that. You know, talking about these policies, reporting on, on disclosing how you treat your employees. There are audits that need to be done with supply chain partners, for example, um, looking mm-hmm. at contracts, um, make sure you have good assessment and understanding of, of health and safety issues and records um, throughout your supply chain. Uh, so it's a very, very broad area. The idea is to make sure that all people in China's life quality is is increasing or has the ability to increase. And it's really trying to push that through from everywhere. Right, right. It's that, that, that rising tide lifts all boats sort of thing where we've got a lot exactly. of unequal development exactly. across the country, you know, really isolated in the East and, and, and the con- conditions of socially, con- socially in, in the West are, are lagging seriously. Um, I guess, you know, on that topic, my, my reaction always jumps back to some of my days in, in, in manufacturing, you know, we would go and we'd be doing social audits uh, for our, our manufacturing facilities. And I'm sure that you guys hear this too, but some of these social laws, so to speak, like the uh, employee welfare laws are not actually being flouted by the organizations themselves. It's the employees that want the overtime or that prefer a more slack sort of set of mm-hmm. conditions so that they can better profit from, from the hours and from, from the actual engagement with the organization. And I think that in China, it's going to be, it's going to be a long road to seeing that really translate over, over many years. Uh, when you, when you look at the lower end of the value chain and, um, it, it's certainly a space to watch. And I know that some of our, some of our companies that are listening that have, Factories have plants, have 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 production lines here. Are probably hearing this and you know saying, but they don't want anything to do with this employee welfare system. They want the overtime. They want to work as many hours mm-hmm. as they possibly can. And I think that, as I said, that's that's going to be an interesting one to watch. But on the topic of of social, um, I am curious to hear. We we cover this in the report, and uh, it was one that really you know had me thinking. 
How seriously are you seeing companies taking the idea of creating socially responsible products in China? And I guess how much of that is consumer driven? How much how much is this the consumer base in China really asking for a more responsibly uh, sourced or a ethically sourced product uh, when they when they shop? Is that is that happening quickly? I mean, and is it is it consumer driven or is it more, more company driven? That's a great point, and and we do cover this in the report. It is again both uh, consumer and company driven, but we've been encouraged to see through consumer surveys that are referred to in the report um, that there is an increasing demand um, from Chinese consumers to be willing, I should say, demand and willingness to spend money, more money on, uh, on socially responsible products. So that's something that is, is referenced in the report. It was an interesting find for us when we looked at that survey earlier this year, or last year, 2021, uh, when it came through. So from the company perspective, there's a very strict compliance aspect to this as well. Companies are very very keen to be adhering to, to laws and regulations. And I think that's that's critical to understand, as it should be. You know, there's, there's no big surprise in that statement. I, I guess important, especially if you're looking through supply chain and companies operating in China, sourcing from China, is really understanding what that means in the local context, especially if your supply chains are going quite deep and into different, less developed regions within China. It's, it's really important for companies to, to understand how these standards are being applied in local communities in, in different regions of their supply chains, just to make sure that's happening effectively. Yeah, as I said, another another space that we certainly want to continue to watch. Um, before, I think we have time for maybe one more. Bookends the report nicely because we, towards the end of this report, we 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 get into the governance issue that you mentioned in your opening remarks there, and uh, we we talk a bit about anti-competitive practices being tracked. And uh, I wondered if, you, because this is such an important space, you know, I think a lot of the tech crackdown that we're seeing uh, has a lot to do with this. Maybe you can again unpack that a little bit. Tell us a bit about these anti-competitive practices, maybe an example of a company that had a had an anti-competitive practice and they were cracked down on. So maybe just some learning for our listeners there. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is something that has, as I said earlier, been an increasingly focused as well. And, and I think the, the study that you'll see in the report refers to a company working in the internet space that was uh, really hit with, with very big penalties on this for, for forcing exclusivity agreements mm-hmm. as well. So the example here is as a set of massive Chinese internet company was fined um, 18 billion yuan uh, for implementing an exclusivity practice on vendors and customers, um, essentially forcing these companies to only deal with one player in the marketplace. So that's, that's the kind of thing that you can get caught out with. The government takes a very hard line against that. We see in that in the same year, last year, there were 22 local internet companies fined um, half a million each yuan, that is each for um, actions, including acquiring stakes in other companies that might improperly increase their market power as well. So these these things are really very much in the spotlight. I think to mitigate these risks, it's really important that companies need to strengthen their internal controls and audits um, when coming into activities like merging and share acquisitions and, and bilateral corporations mm. with their peers. Mm. Yeah, no, good, very good practical advice. And those are those are staggering fines. I mean, it's no joke, but I suppose this is an important an important area where you've got a few major marketplaces that kind of dominate the scene. And when they're forcing a small vendor or player or even a foreign company that's trying Trying to sell here to only use their platform, their their sub apps, even their payment apps. You know, this is a very mm-hmm. this is a very deep chain of of um, of connectivity across a lot of verticals in China, right? Where you know we for for a long time, it's kind of like the idea of walking into a store at home and them only taking Mastercard or not Visa or whatever it is, right? There are a couple of examples of this, but in China, it's very challenging to to actually uh, live in only one of these worlds. Um, mm. Because everybody is on, say, WeChat, 
but then everybody also wants to use Taobao. Then those are used, you know, those are those are owned by very different, very different large scale companies that have massive umbrellas of sub apps and 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 sub spheres of different different uh, technologies that have kind of embedded themselves in people's day to day. And so, anyway, it's certainly something to keep an eye on for for companies and executives working here that are looking at uh, at selling, especially online. I think that really is is where we mm-hmm. want to be keeping our eyes open. Um, well, listen, that's I. I think that we've we've done a pretty good job of of uh, a quick kind of a run through of this of this otherwise very very dense report. You know, we came up with about I think it's about thirty five pages long at the end. But I hope that our our readers can take a look at this and use it really as a reference um, and and look at that table of contents, identify where where there are certain risks for you. But I highly encourage you to read it all the way through as well. But uh, Callum, thank you very much. Any any final thoughts on on ESG in China when you're talking to Canadian companies for us? I mean, I know that you have a lot of people coming in the door every day wondering, as we said earlier, you know, why why ESG? And uh, you know, maybe you mm-hmm. can inspire some of our listeners with a, a final send off on uh, on why this is going to be uh, you know such a growing and, and increasingly important area for them to focus on. Yeah, well, I think I think that's the big question. And if you look at the the higher purpose um, answer to that one, we really have this decade to get the world economy on track for us sustainable future. Um, and everything we do through ESG um, is, is leading towards that goal as well. And a sustainable future is, you know, it's difficult to stress enough <laughs> what that means for business, right? The enormity of cost and risk that's coming down to companies is, is, is there. We've been covering that a lot. Putting in place the governance structures is, is really helpful just to start that from the ESG perspective. Having very clear ESG strategies will help you on that way. Eventually, if you don't have these in place, it's going to become more expensive um, and impossible to compete in the market. So there's a mixture of, of really doing what we need to do in order to get the economy on track for a sustainable future um, and just staying in business. Well, I think that's uh, that's very well put. And there's nothing quite like the the, the words expensive and cost to uh, attra- <laughs> convey the attention or, or to capture the attention of, of, of executives listening. So uh, I hope that that's not the only driver of the, uh, of the ESG agenda, but certainly an important one. But but anyway, thank you. Callum Douglas of PwC um, based here in Beijing. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode of The Bilateral. Thank you very much, Noah. Pleasure to be working with you. Cheers. Keep an eye on your email and social channels as we bring you more content on the Canada-China business and investment relationship. More events and information are always available on ccbc.com and our WeChat account. So please give us a follow. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review to help more listeners find us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Fei Chang Gan Xie.